2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 30 in our series of 2019, and today's date is Friday, August the 23rd, and today I talk to James Cooper Jones, the CEO of exciting New Zealand-born global digital ag tech company CropLogic, looking at its operations spanning Australia and the Pacific Northwest region of the US. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about his proposals for an evaluator general. But now, let's talk to James Cooper Jones. James, uh, tell us about CropLogic, a huge agricultural technology company.
0: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. So CropLogic is a New Zealand company. Uh, so we spun out of the Institute of Plant and Food in New Zealand. So the Institute of Plant and Food is the CSIRO equivalent. So the Institute of Plant and Food, federally government, uh, federally owned New Zealand research, Agricultural Research Institute, we uh, spun out of that, uh, out of uh, the Institute of Plant and Food and, and remain partly New Zealand government owned by the Institute and then the New Zealand government directly. New Zealand government's very good at supporting their, their technology, so they have they've, uh, uh, have quite a few innovation funds set up, uh, and of two of which are investors in cropology.
2: Uh, but while you are uh, owned by the New Zealand government, you're also listed on the Australian Securities Exchange.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Absolutely. So we're listed on the ASX. Uh, it's a great Australian, uh, New Zealand, USA story. Uh, that is CropLogic. So although we are a new, very proudly a New Zealand company, uh, we also have a strong Australian uh, investor base and in, uh, Australian management, and then we have a team uh, in the US. So we have uh, a team of, of 20 agronomists uh, and, uh, uh, and support staff up there in the US.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've so, yeah. you you uh, you've got uh, huge uh, produce uh, in, in the US. Uh, I believe you're the second largest uh, state for uh, irrigation water with, uh, withdrawals in Idaho, which is the largest state of potatoes over there.
0: Absolutely. So after being spun out of the Institute of Plant and Food in 2010, CropLogic did have a history of very research-focused and had some very good uh, uh, general managers and and CEOs who had PhDs in their field. So in collaboration with the Institute of Plant and Food, they've really developed the technology well uh, and and, uh, we have a deep body of research. Instigated by the government probably end of 2016, uh, we uh, went on to a commercialisation footing. So we looked at the, our markets where this technology is being is most applicable, uh, and very quickly the USA and Australia came up. Uh, we looked at it, the USA market and and uh, it was very attractive. So we launched the product there into Washington State, up near the Canadian border on the west coast in 2007. Uh, the this season will be our second season in that market, and we've had a five-fold increase in the take-up of our technology. So as you say, now preparing at the end of 2018 for the 2019 season, uh, it's winter up there, as we know, in, in North America. We're, we're, we've set up an office in Idaho. So as you say, that's the, the second largest uh, irrigating irrigation state in the US in regards to water draws, and then also the largest producer of potatoes, uh, and we're in the process of evaluating where we. I'm just back from the US with meetings in Oregon, and uh, increasingly confident we'll, we'll have an office in Oregon next year as well to offer the product into Oregon. So we're growing rapidly uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, and the markets there are, are tremendous. I mean, they're, they're uh, massive markets, very sophisticated growers, and it's, it's a credit to. The work that's been done, that they're seeing value in what we're doing. So,
2: so what, are the, what are the big target crops? I'd imagine citrus, almonds and wine, and grapes and olives would be quite big there, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, look, our technology, and it, and it kind of speaks to, Leon, the, the, the benefit of, of having the, the strategic partnership. I often get asked, what, what is logic done right? We have a a research partnership and have technology at the Institute of Plant and Food, so one of the best uh, research institutes in the world. We also have partnered with agronomists, so the farm scientists. They're the fellows that have got the agri agri degrees. They've been uh, servicing clients with their agronomy skills for, for many, many years. We partnered with a group up there in Washington State. So some of those guys have 35 years of experience. That's produced a very robust uh, product. So as we go to each region, Leon, to tell you what our target markets are, uh, target crops are, and to answer that question, now they're determined by the regions that we go. So in Washington, the big crops are row crops, so potatoes, onions and carrots, but they also have a lot of cherries, and they also have a have a have quite a strong wine industry. So they're the key crops in Washington. In Idaho, it has a big dairy industry, and of course, as I mentioned, the potato industry. So... Their dairy industry is unlike, I guess, Warnerville, unlike Kiwa Valley in that it's largely feedlot-type arrangements where the where the fodder is grown off, off-site. off uh, They're not grazing cows. Uh, so we are targeting the forage market uh, there in Idaho. As we move to Oregon, biggest pear producer. We're doing uh, apples and pears in Washington, so that's easy to translate that knowledge. Uh, they do a lot of berries and a lot of wine. And then we're seeing some of the exotic co- crops come on the on the on the radar, such as hemp, uh, quite a large explosion of hemp uh, there in in Oregon. Uh, so we they will be the target crops for us in Oregon. But exactly as you say, in Australia, in our Mildura office, very citrus, very almonds, very viticulture, uh, wine and table grapes, or viticulture focused. Uh, so tell us about uh, the uh, how, how does your technology work in the in the agriculture industry? Sure. So CropLogic has three digital ag tech products. We have CropLogic Real Time, CropLogic Aerial Imagery, and CropLogic Predict. So CropLogic Real Time is a system of soil moisture sensors that then provide those readings to a desktop and mobile app, and that allows the grower then to have in their palm uh, minute details of how their water moisture is is uh, uh, soil moisture is is reacting. So we have uh, sensors that go down anywhere between two feet and five feet into the soil. We'll we'll put down different uh, soil sensors depending on the crop type because every crop Leon has their root system at uh, at a different level. Then every soil type absorbs water differently. So the object of the game is not how much water you put on but getting that moisture down to where the root ball is, to where the root system is. So every plant and every soil uh, type is going to be different hence why you need a, sen- a system of, of remote sensors. Uh, we do aerial imagery, so we use infrared and near-infrared aerial imagery. We fly fields uh, in every year in the U.S. We fly an area about the size of Bangladesh, about 114,000 square kilometres. We take aer- so uh, infrared aerial images. So a healthy plant will give off a different infrared image than a, non- a non-healthy plant or a stressed plant. So that allows us to produce images for growers that shows the area of their field that is stressed that may not necessarily be uh, visible by the naked eye. So uh, that allows the grower then to, to tackle an issue, whether it's a lack of moisture, whether it's a pest infestation, significantly earlier then it appears to the naked eye. Sometimes that's one to two weeks. So when you're talking about a growing period for a grower of, of say, a potato crop that's 16 weeks, you lose two weeks. You're losing a significant amount of time of the optimum growing period. With this technology, that allows growers then to to, uh, tackle these issues and get the optimum uh, growing days uh, from each of their crops. Well, that would mean the The growers
2: would have to be right across the technology too.
0: So that's where I guess it's a good segue to say that what is a, a point of difference, I guess, from us to other systems, Leon, is we also have the agri sales and agronomy support. So we have agronomists uh, that, that uh, will visit with a client and, and also be looking at the data, whether it's soil moisture or whether it's aerial imagery, to stand side by side and say, well, look, I think you have an issue there. Uh, I think these are the, 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 uh, the remedies that you may like to consider. So it helps certainly someone said to me for ag tech to work it needs to be very robust starter but it needs to tell the grower what they need to do by the click of a button and that's certainly our modus operandi with, with our, our digital systems so our, our interfaces are very user friendly. It's immediately clear to the grower what, what the trends are but then we follow that up with after sales service and agronomy support uh, to help the grower interpret that data even further. And growers have taken
2: to this quite well?
0: Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, uh, launched the product from an Australian, New Zealand perspective. The US market is massive, but commonly known to be an incredibly hard market to crack and get a foothold. So, as I mentioned, we've launched the product there in Washington State, Columbia Basin, so one of the premier growing regions of, of, of the USA, and have a, had a fivefold increase in, our, in the take-up of our technology. So, in some of our zones, and some of our target crops, we're servicing as much as 30% of the market. So that's just astounding, really, in two seasons. Uh, We're seeing then that has led us on that journey to uh, have uh, requests and and interest in our products out of Idaho and now Oregon, and that's why we're setting up our offices. We cracked the Australian market, set up the office there uh, just this season. Uh, So set up the office there in, in late August, early September, had the team, established in in October, uh, on board and established in October. And uh, they've just received their first sale uh, earlier in the week. So, yeah, demand's good. I think what you're seeing, to bring it back to an Australian story, you're seeing one of our target crops there is citrus. You're seeing growers receive two to three times the price for their crops of what they were receiving three to five years ago. So there's a boom happening there. But also the, the cost of water has doubled. Uh, in in the Riverina, in the Sunraysia, in the Mallee, uh, and so what you've got is there's no lack of demand. The price is going up, but increasingly, uh, water is becoming scarce, and so that's uh, where you're seeing increasingly uh, growers starting to look for digital systems to allow uh, to help them uh, mitigate those challenges.
2: Well, James, that's fascinating and uh, wonderful talk to you and. Uh... Wishing uh, Crop Logic all the best. Thank you very much for your time.
0: No trouble. Thanks, Leo. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's talk to economist
2: Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you're giving a talk this week entitled Skimming the Surface or Plumbing the Depths.
3: Who are you giving it to and what's it about? Um, I'm giving it to the Australian Marketing and Social Research Conference. And uh, I think they're pretty interested in some of the work I've done or some of the uh, arguments I've been making for an evaluator in general in government and generally promoting evidence-based practice. Uh, and I wanted to talk to them. Uh, so, so people who do market research uh, often have focus groups and things like that. And the title I gave it, which is Skimming the Surface or Plumbing the Depths, Refers to something which is sort of I've been ruminating on for some time, which is that the way our systems work. Um, I guess this, yeah, this is kind of what you expect, I suppose. The way our systems work, everyone in the systems want, wants to get on with uh, with with the, what's going to reward them. That tends to produce a rather superficial approach. Let me give you an example. When people ask me, well, people often ask. Uh, me about my views about interest rates and the question that seems to me to be the most po- important is should the Reserve Bank move interest rates up or down? The, and the, but, but the question that people spend their time talking about is will the Reserve Bank move interest rates up or down? Now you can see the difference and you can see how in an economy where it really matters whether you can guess what the central bank is going to do uh, on the relevant tuesday of each month you you you're going to be much more <laughs> profitable if you can predict what the what the reserve bank will do and so the more important question of what the reserve bank should do is somehow becomes much less interesting to all those people having business lunches than what will happen and so my talk is going to uh, talk about that phenomenon, and it's going to talk about that phenomenon in a couple of areas. One is focus group research, and the other is the evaluator general or the way in which we pursue evidence-based policy in uh, government, but also also in business. Well, how is an evaluator general better than focus group research? Um, well uh let me let me divide those two things up. I was contrasting focus group research with what I call deliberative focus groups, which is a sort of an idea i've kind of invented um, in response to this point about can we stop skimming the surface and start plumbing the depths and then we can maybe talk about um, some of the things to do with the evaluator general now when a political party or a or a retailing firm or a a big firm with some government affairs concerns, uh, some public relations concerns, when they commission a focus group, uh, what they're usually trying to do, they're trying to do something which is in some ways a little bit creepy. You can say they're just trying to tap into the public sentiment, and that's true, but they're also trying to find ways of expressing themselves which tap into the way people are thinking, even though the particular participant might not be thinking that way. So, for instance, when John Howard won the 1996 election by saying that uh, the Australian economy had only experienced five minutes of economic sunshine under Paul Keating, I think he heard that. I don't think that does come from a focus group. It may. It, it, I think it was tested in focus groups. And uh, I think somebody, it may have been John Howard, heard that expression. Somebody said that to him and off he went and it became a great line for him. Now, that's all done with manipulative intent. And we've seen how powerful that can be in uh, the UK. Uh, we've had uh, this slogan, taking back control. And so things things can be made to appeal very – to have a lot of resonance with people by echoing the way they're thinking, and that's kind of what you would expect people, political operatives, people who are trying to market stuff. That's kind of what you would expect. Now, let's ask a different question, which is that policy is full of all sorts of difficult choices. What a focus group – isn't telling, it's telling you great lines if that's what you go looking for. What it's not telling you is people's persuadability. So a focus group is very rarely held about, which is trying to really take people through a process of deliberation and a process of uh, thinking where they might say to, say, British people about Brexit, do you really support, you know, you like this idea of taking back control Do you support uh, a no-deal Brexit? If you don't, you're not in a very strong position to negotiate with the EU anyway. Uh, And so to take people through these difficult choices and in a way democracy is supposed to do that, but it actually doesn't do that because what you've got is you've got two major parties, each with their own focus groups, each coming up with these slogans and the the upshot where people would give ground where people would find compromise with each other that's all invisible to the system uh, because we are skimming the surface not plumbing the depths so in the case of an evaluator general we don't lack we don't lack data and we don't lack evidence on all kinds of policies what we do lack is causal data what we do lack is data that really gives us insight into what's going on and how we can improve things. So let me, let me take you through the logic there. Take a, uh, a program like Job Active, which is a kind of new Orwellian, it's not that new, but it's the Orwellian term for the old Commonwealth Employment Service, where the government spends several billion dollars a year uh, in services helping people find jobs. Now that system, which is largely contracted out, We'll have all kinds of KPIs, all kinds of key performance indicators, all kinds of data is generated. How many people were seen? How many of those people were counselled? Uh, how many introductions were made? And when they got jobs, or if they got jobs, and so on. So there's no there's no lack of data. There's no lack of evidence. But the data is fairly is fairly is is skimming the surface. The the data. Is often fairly self-serving, and 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 exists really to provide information about this little bubble in which the program operates. The most fundamental questions, or the, the most fundamental questions you want to ask, generally the causal questions, questions about how would the uh, you know would it be worth changing this or changing that. The data you need there is causal data. You need some idea of what would have happened if you didn't do what you did. And that data is not generated. And my suspicion, I mean, there's a fair bit of evidence that people have gleaned from here and there that an awful lot of these, an awful lot of this money doesn't really achieve very much. It's going through the motions because the people who are going to get jobs are going to get jobs. Uh, and the people who are not going to get jobs it 's very difficult to help those people uh now i 'm not that that's not me uh, saying we should we should end all expenditure on that program it's me saying the program is 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 a program which is there to look like people care and look like people are doing something it's not a program which is generating the evidence that would be necessary if it was to constantly improve its efficacy constantly improve its effectiveness in doing what it's supposed to be doing there and uh, that's just one example of the way in which if we act uh, the, the way in which we should be trying to build a system in which when governments do something a an independent, means is found of measuring what they're doing and trying to measure that important counterfactual question what would have happened if we didn't do that or what would happen if we found a better way to do that uh, and so on and so forth and if we did that we might find that we could really over a period of time which wouldn't which would be longer than a single electoral cycle sadly over a period of five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we might find that we could really substantially improve the kinds of services we provide and actually uh, start to solve some of these problems that most of us think are kind of intractable, like multi-generational welfare uh, and, and entrenched disadvantage.
2: And indeed, it could deploy just as much to business. And as you say, the Evaluator-General would evaluate it from the evidence and look forward as to what would happen if you didn't have that, as opposed to the self-serving stuff that comes out of focus groups. And Nicholas Green, that's fascinating. And uh, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thanks very much, Leon.
2: So what's happening in the news? Well, Donald Trump has dramatically escalated his demands for Fed policy easing, calling on crisis-era-sized rate cuts and a return to quantitative easing. As a report emerged that the White House has started discussing a temporary payroll tax cut to halt slowing economic growth, Mr Trump lashed out at a horrendous lack of vision by Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Lamenting the strong US dollar, Mr Trump said on Monday that the Fed funds rate over a fairly short period of time should be cut by 100 basis points to between 1% and 1.25%, with perhaps some quantitative easing as well. If that happened... Our economy would be even better, and the world economy would be greatly and quickly enhanced. Good for everyone, he wrote on Twitter. The latest attack on the Fed threatens to worsen the messaging coming out of the administration, which has shown signs of being rattled by last week's financial market meltdown. Officials and the president insist there is no risk of recession while simultaneously demanding the kind of ultra stimulative monetary policy settings that were used to counter the global financial crisis 12 years ago. However, Signs continue to emerge that the administration is increasingly worried about growing recession warnings. The Washington Post said several senior White House officials have started early-stage talks on whether to push Congress to pass payroll tax relief. The White House later denied any such move was under consideration. Despite the administration's assurances that there's no danger of a significant downturn in the economy, some 74% of US business economists believe the risks emerging from Mr Trump's economic policies mean There will be a recession by the end of 2021. And Australian consumer confidence slumped to a five-month low last week, driven by increased pessimism towards the outlook for the domestic economy. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 2.3% to 112.8, leaving it at the lowest level since late March. And spending across the Australian economy fell for a second consecutive month in July, according to new data released by the Commonwealth Bank. The bank's Business Sales Indicator, a measure that tracks the value of electronic transactions processed through its merchant facilities, fell by 0.1% last month in trend terms after declining by a similar margin in June. And ASIC is planning a litigation blitz in coming months as it puts up 50 matters into the courts, many of them arising from the Hain Royal Commission. ASIC Deputy Chairman Enforcement Daniel Crennan QC says that on top of the 13 referrals from the Commission... The regulator was looking at three times as many case studies with a view to legal proceedings. A slew of cases is expected to be underway before Senate Estimates hearings in late October, at which ASIC will be asked to explain the results of a dramatic boost in funding, up 25% in the May budget to $400 million over the next four years, and the progress of its new Why Not Litigate approach to enforcement. It could mean direction hearings, which can allocate hearing dates being held before the end of a year. And the Australian Securities Investments Commission has made it clear it will not take a backward step after challenging bankers from the NAB and ANZ over their lending standards just days after an embarrassing setback in the federal court. ASIC Deputy Chairman Karen Chester and Commissioner Sean Hughes presented a united front as they grilled bankers, mortgage brokers and aggregators in the second day of two public hearings into responsible lending. The hearings held by the corporate regulator are a means of holding the bank's feet to the fire and testing claims that tightening existing guidelines could restrict, raise the cost of, or even cut off credit to specific sectors. The corporate regulator's flexing follows a humiliating defeat in the federal court after Justice Nye Perrim threw out its case that Westpac broke responsible lending laws more than a quarter of a million times after approving home loans using automated processes. Commissioner Hughes said the corporate regulator factually and fundamentally did not accept many of the positions being advanced by lenders as he opened proceedings at the Melbourne leg of the hearings. And Australia's four major banks will appear before the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics at Public Hearings in Canberra on the 8th and 15th of November 2019. And more than half of Australia's population has lost money due to misconduct or inappropriate actions by financial services institutions such as banks, a University of Melbourne study has found. The cost over the past five years alone has been extrapolated to an eye-watering $201 billion. The figure far exceeds the estimates of compensation due to customers from recent scandals. Many of these examples were uncovered in last year's Banking Royal Commissions, which analysts estimate as floating towards $10 billion. A survey of 1029 consumers found a trust deficit between consumers and institutions. And the Australian energy market operator has abandoned a potential carbon price in its future modelling for the electricity grid. In an admission that has implications for how Australia will reach its international carbon reduction targets, AEMO said it would change its scenario modelling to reflect the fact that Coalition and Labor had shown no inclination to revive a market-based mechanism that was introduced in 2012 and repealed in 2014. Since that time, Neither major political party has committed to an explicit carbon price as part of their policy setting, AEMO said in its latest report. In addition, renewable generation technologies are becoming cost-competitive with conventional new generation, even without subsidies. As such, AEMO does not apply a price-based mechanism to achieve decarbonisation. Rather, AEMO's approach may apply a volume-based carbon budget to suit each scenario's level of decarbonisation ambition. And the modelling does not, and does not need to, stipulate the actual mechanism for achieving this outcome. The consultation paper provides an insight into how the energy market operator is grappling to deal with the fast-changing energy grid, which has been swamped by an influx of renewable energy that has challenged reliability when there is no clear climate policy from the federal government. It also shows the challenges of negotiating with big energy companies on modelling for its integrated systems plan for the national electricity market over the next 20 years. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, has revealed an implementation roadmap around the 54 recommendations from the Financial Services Royal Commission that call for government action. The final report from the Commissioner Kenneth Hain made 76 recommendations, 54 of which were directed at the government, which has been accused of dragging its feet in response to the Commission. In what is described as a full implementation roadmap, Mr Frydenberg said more than a third of the government's commitments in response to the final report will have been implemented or will have legislation before Parliament by the end of the year. He said more than 50 commitments of the 54 will have been implemented or be subject to legislation by the middle of next year. The government's strategy is that the remaining four recommendations needing legislation will have been introduced by the end of 2020. The remaining 22 recommendations from the Royal Commission were aimed at regulators and the finance industry. The release of the timetable comes with a commitment to independently review the impact of the changes in three years' time. There is no reference to what independent body, expert or body would conduct the review. And the Chief Executive of Australia's largest job-hunting website, Seek, has warned that current job numbers are hiding the full effects of automation in the workplace, saying any economic downturn will lead to thousands of mid-level jobs going and not returning. While some labour economists argue the fear surrounding automation and jobs is overhyped in the context of high current levels of employment, Andrew Bassett said it already observed a hollowing out of middle management jobs on Seek's website. And supermarket owner Coles and grinding materials supplier Mollycop have inked separate long-term contracts to buy renewable energy driven by high electricity bills and the desire to shrink their environmental footprint. The deals will support several new solar and wind farms in regional New South Wales and represent an acceleration of corporate power purchase agreements for clean energy after a lull earlier this year around the federal election. The 10-year deal by Coles, the first to be signed by a major Australian retailer, will underpin the construction of three new solar farms near Wagga Wagga, Corowa, and Juni, and will provide the equivalent of 10% of coal's national electricity usage. Online retailer Kogan has already diversified into insurance, mobile phones, and travel. Now it wants to manage your retirement savings. Kogan Super, launched in partnership with Mercer, builds itself as one of the lowest fee funds on the market because it relies heavily on index investing. And Australia's booming coal industry, has made the nation the world's third biggest exporter of potential carbon dioxide emissions locked in fossil fuels, placing it only behind oil giants Russia and Saudi Arabia. Australia makes up 7% of all global fossil fuel exports by carbon dioxide potential, as accounts for almost one-third of the world's coal trade, according to a report from the Australian Institute, which has been critical of the federal government's efforts to combat global climate change. While China and the U.S. are the world's top greenhouse gas emitters in absolute terms, the report highlights the role relatively small polluters play in selling fossil fuels to other nations. Australia, which is also one of the biggest gas exporters, supplies economies through Asia, including Japan, China and South Korea. Exports of fossil fuels and supply infrastructure play a crucial role in locking in increased emissions and their impact is often ignored in climate change policy, the AI said in the report. And the profit reporting season continues. BHP has posted its best profit in five years and paid its biggest ever dividend, but the US $9.4 billion underlying profit was significantly lower than most analysts had expected. Beacon Lighting posted an 18.1% fall in net profit to $16 million. Kogan.com returned to profit growth in the June half and delivered a 22% increase in net profit to $17.2 million for the year. Crown Resorts posted normalised net profit after tax of $368.8 million, 4.7% on last year, but the result was below market consensus for earnings of $371.4 million. Significant items for 2018-19 totaled $573.6 million, largely from impairments to Seven West Media's TV licence and print smartheads, sending the company to a loss of $444.5 million for the financial year. East Coast gas producer Senex. Posted a modest net profit for the full year of $3.3 million, a turnaround from the $94 million loss of 2018 19. Sonic Healthcare recorded a jump in net profit of 15.6% to $550 million for the year to June 30. Engineering group Monodelphus reported a 29% drop in annual net profits to $50.5 million. Seek reported a full year net profit of $180.3 million, up 245% from last year. Primarily due to impairments in the previous financial year. Underlying profit, excluding significant items, was up marginally to $229 million. Oil search net profit jumped to US $161.9 million in the six months into June 30, up from $79.2 million in the year earlier half, which was hit by the impact of a major earthquake in PNG. Wheel drive accessory groups ARB Corporation's net profit climbed by 12.1% to $57.1 million in 2018-19. Health insurer NIB posted an annual profit of $149.3 million, up 13% on the previous year. Beach Energy's profit for the year ending June 30 surged to $577.3 million, up 190% from the previous year, which was a- impacted by acquisition costs and an asset write-down. Revenues jumped 64% to $2.08 billion due to a 55% increase in output as well as higher oil and gas prices. Sydney-based Lendley said earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation dropped 30% to $1.25 billion last year, and after tax profits slumped 41% to $467 million. BlueScope produced a full-year net profit of $1.02 billion. NetWealth has reported a full-year net profit after tax of $36 million a 24% increase over the year as its funds under administration continued to increase. Saracen Mineral Holdings reported 22% rise in profits to $92.5 million. Toilet and tap maker GWA unveiled a jump in full-year profits, heavily fuelled by the sale of its Locks and Doors division of $95 million compared to $54 million. Reproductive technology company Virtus Health's net profit was down 7.8% to $28.4 million from $30.8 million. Domino's Pizza Enterprises missed earnings guidance with underlying earnings before interest and tax rising 7.2% to 220.8 million, well below guidance of 227 million to 247 million and consensus of 226.7 million. The A2 Milk Company's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation was up 46.1% to New Zealand 413.6 million. Gas pipeline owner APA Group has posted an 8.8% increase in net profit for the full year of. $288 $288 million in the 12 months ending June 30, from $264.8 million a year earlier. Diversified developer Stockland's profit was down 69.6% to $311 million. Global engineering group Worley's annual net profits more than doubled to $151.9 million on the back of a $4.6 billion US acquisition. Logistics software group WiseTech's earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortisation rose 39%. To 108.1 million for the year ending June 30, Amcor announced net income of US 430.2 million, down from US 575.2 million dollars. Online classifieds group CarSales.com posted a net profit down 53.8 percent on the prior year, 85.27 million dollars, and Macmillan Shakespeare Group reported its profit in fiscal 2019 rose 26.6 percent to 63.6 million dollars. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dan Springer, the CEO of DocuSign and the company's e-signature business. While environmental benefits are part and parcel with DocuSign's product offering, Dan's personal interest in and commitment to philanthropy in the area of environmental causes pushes him to take the company's corporate social responsibility pursuits to the next level. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver reviewing the profit reporting season. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.